0: Creating parks and protected areas is one of the most time-honored, durable, and effective conservation strategies, and I I would add, climate change strategies in the world. Communities and places in the world have been setting aside lands as a source of food as sacred areas for millennia.
1: Welcome to Straight Talk a podcast about big ideas featuring candid discussions with some of the world's foremost thinkers and doers. I'm Hank Paulson, chairman of the Paulson Institute, and today I'm speaking with Carter Roberts. Carter is the president and CEO of World Wildlife Fund. He leads WWF's efforts to save the world's great ecosystems and address climate change and linking science, field and policy programs, with an initiative to work with markets and businesses to lighten their impact on the planet. Carter earned his MBA from Harvard Business School, following a BA from Princeton University, and subsequently held marketing management positions for Procter & Gamble and Gillette. He went on to lead international conservation and science programs for 15 years at the Nature Conservancy before coming to WWF in 2004. Carter has served in his current role for 17 years evolving and expanding the work of WWF along the way. Carter, welcome to the podcast. You are and have been for a long time a strategic visionary and a thought leader in the field of conservation and someone who is relentlessly focused on putting your strategies into action. I'm a longtime admirer and I'm looking forward very much to our conversation today. So let's start at the beginning. You're an avid birder and a naturalist. So I have a hunch this must go back to your earliest days. Tell us a bit about your childhood and upbringing.
0: Thanks for having me. And um, it's great to have a chance to catch up with you. I, um, I, I always say to people, if you're going to introduce yourself and explain how you came to be, you better start with your parents. And uh, I grew up in Georgia and my, my mother and my father could not have been more different. My dad was a surgeon a professor of medicine. He ran clinics around the world teaching doctors how to heal children with birth defects. And he taught me several lessons growing up. One was the secret to happiness is to serve something that's bigger than you are and make sure you are constantly learning. But by example, he also taught me you better work your tail off if you're going to get anything done. My mother was obsessed with animals. And I spent a ton of time disappearing from the house, uh, getting out of Dodge, disappearing in the woods, turning over logs, looking for salamanders, and learning the sounds of birds. And uh, I grew up singing in 1977. I actually performed behind the Iron Curtain as part of a diplomatic exchange with the Soviet Union. And since then, I've always experienced nature through sound, which of course takes you immediately. To birds.
1: It sure does. And uh, you are a world-class birder. And, you know, Carter, I got to know you best birding with my wife, Wendy. So tell our listeners about the connection between bird watching and conservation. And then I'm going to go to another question here and make the connection with sound because, you know, it's, it's a lot easier often to identify a bird by the song, or often to hear it before you see it, but talk a little bit about the connection between conservation and birding.
0: You know, my first job in conservation was with the Nature Conservancy in New England. I'll never forget going on a walk with our chief scientist, and I considered it magic that he could identify birds by song, and just walk through the forest, and pick out black-throated blue, and an oven bird, and all kinds of sparrows without even seeing the creature. And I I thought that was the most amazing thing. And subsequently, I really fell in love with birding and had the experience of going to Mount Auburn Cemetery, having venture capitalists, meat packers, uh, little old ladies uh, take me under their wing, teach me the songs of birds. And then over time, I realized that the finest scientists in the world of conservation were also obsessive birders and just spending time with them I learned a lot about birds but I learned a lot about how to look at the world and you know for me look the birds are the only creatures that sing every species has a different song and uh and they are magical like Fabergé eggs on wing and uh taking people out into the forest or onto the coastline and showing them birds, explaining their behavior, explaining why they are what they are, is a window into the broader complexity of the natural world in a way that people just can't help but be taken by. And I love that. That's the connection. It's a point of entry. But you, if you try to understand birds, you got to understand their habitat, their behavior, their food, and all the changes around them. And that is the mindset of any good naturalist and conservationist
1: my earliest connection was with my dad horseback riding when i was seven or eight and boy he knew the bird songs and he'd say hank that's a meadowlark that's a field sparrow that's a bobolink," and i tell you it was again also magical to me but before leaving birding what's your favorite bird and what's the bird you haven't yet seen, but most want to see? And I know you've seen a lot of them. I should also ask you how many you have seen different species.
0: I think I, I stopped keeping count. I think in North America, I've seen 740 different species globally. I've lost track. It has taken me to some remote corners of the world. And, um, and that's just been part of my adventure. My favorite bird goes back to when I worked in Central America and climbed up into the cloud forests of guatemala and you end up in these places with live oaks big not live oaks big oaks festooned with ferns and orchids and um and there is a bird that lives in those very remote places that nests in these old oaks and only eats avocados (laughs) and that is the resplendent quetzal it's, it is an improbable bird. It's got a three foot long tail and its feathers are iridescent. Depending on the angle of the sun, they change from green to blue to gold. And they are the stuff of legend in the Mayan world. And actually, the name of the Guatemalan currency is the Quetzal. So I love that bird. The okay. bird I most want to see is it is the Kakapo, world's biggest parrot, flightless It just waddles up and down an island off the coast of New Zealand, uh, croaks out a few calls, and that's how it finds a mate. There are fewer than 100 left in the world, and I would love to see that bird before it's gone.
1: Terrific. You know, I've never seen the resplendent Quetzal, but uh, Wendy has, and I think she saw it in El Triumfo, but, but maybe it was Guatemala. But in any event, birds are fascinating. Now, I want to move right along here. And when I was chairman of the National Board of the Nature Conservancy, you were putting together their strategic plan. I could see then that you were a really deep and clear thinker. Tell us about how and when you made the decision to pursue conservation as a career. I noticed you started off in marketing in the business world.
0: I grew up, went to college in the North and then went to business school and getting out of business school. And you and I went to the same school. I um, tried to get a job and they were only hiring scientists and lawyers, scientists to study species and the environment and lawyers to use that information to pass laws and to sue people. But I could not get a job with a business background. And so I volunteered. And I also turned my mind to starting a business. And with a classmate of mine from business school, we came up with this idea in 1988 of creating a, a, a site on the internet where mothers with newborn kids could go and could order products for their kids, have them delivered to their home, and the products would be good for their kids and good for the environment. And my partner came in one day and said, I've been interviewing for a job on the side. I think you would be much better for it. And you should take my place in the next interview. And that was a job running the Boston office of the Nature Conservancy. And that was 30 years ago and how I came into this field. And I haven't looked back. And the thing about the Nature Conservancy is it took and takes a business-like approach to conservation as does WWF. And I love that.
1: Yeah. And so now you are president and CEO of the World Wildlife Fund. For listeners who may not be familiar, tell us about WWF. Where does it operate? What does it do? And how long has it been doing it?
0: So WWF has been around for about 60 years. We were created... In response to an article that was in the London Observer about the demise of the Serengeti and the other places in Eastern Africa and the consequences for species and for people. And in response to those articles, there was a human cry to create an organization to grab the world's attention, raise money and mobilize the world to save those places before it's too late. And our first campaign was in the UK, followed a month later in the US, followed in Switzerland, the Netherlands. So from the beginning, we were born as a global organization to save these big places in the world. And now, 60 years later, we have 8,000 staff, we operate 100 countries, we have an annual budget of about a billion dollars, And the thing we've learned is if you wanna save any of those places, you better be superb at policy, corporate engagement, science, uh, protected areas, community-based initiatives, and climate change and food. And so we have now got specialists in all those areas. And our greatest hits include creating certification programs for agricultural commodities and also FSC, creating big protected areas around the world, uh, reversing the decline of species like tigers and elephants and rhinos. And our work is constantly evolving.
1: Carter, what an important uh, mission. And one of the things I've noticed is that, uh, and admired it is that WWF is able to manage very large, complex projects. And through efforts like the Amazon Regional Protected Areas, ARPA, which is a project, WWF has invested greatly in national parks as a a biodiversity conservation strategy. Talk about why that is, what you've learned, and what you are doing to accelerate that work.
0: Yeah, thanks, Hank. Of course, you've been a part of a lot of those efforts, but I'll just say at the offset, creating parks and protected areas is one of the most time- honored, durable, and effective conservation strategies, and I would, I would add climate change strategies in the world. Communities and places in the world have been setting aside lands as a source of food as sacred areas for millennia. National Parks America's greatest idea. And in fact, the first national park system was created in the US. And it has been a backbone of conservation efforts ever since Yosemite and Yellowstone and other areas were declared, and is now a backbone of conservation across the world. The nations of the world through the Convention on Biological Diversity set a goal of getting to 20% of land conserved around the world. We're now at 17. Since then, nations of the world have updated that to include to to get after 30% in land and water by the year 2030. And E.O. Wilson has thrown down the gauntlet through his half-Earth concept that we ought to get to 50% if we want to keep the planet intact for us and other forms of life. The pressure right now, the race is on for what happens to the land that is still to play for. Is it gonna turn into parks, mixed use areas? Is it gonna turn into a shopping mall? Is it gonna be divided up by infrastructure? And, and it is very much is under threat as the population of people on earth are growing And they're demanding higher and higher standards of living. And in a finite planet, something has to give. So, but parks are super important. And we've got to get after that with at speed and scale. And one thing I love about ARPA, it was collaboration between the World Bank, Government of Brazil, WWF, and the Moore Foundation. The goal was to set aside 10% of the Brazilian Amazon and parks. And now the number and area of parks in the Brazilian Amazon is equal in size to one and a half Californias. Now, we've, we've gone and replicated that in countries around the world, but we've realized that it is not enough to just create a park or a paper park that has no, no management, no park guards, no science, no boots on the ground, no signs. Um, it, it's helpful to have a park be declared. But a park will only work if it is fully financed and supported over time. And so we've now created an initiative. ARPA was the first one. We've now done it in Peru, in Bhutan. We've done it in, we're working with the the president of Colombia and the president of Belize right now to do the same. And we now have a unprecedented radical partnership with the Nature Conservancy, the Pew Charitable Trust, and some members of the Walton family to repeat that in 25 countries around the world. It's the biggest play in conservation, one of the most exciting partnerships I've ever been a part of. And Hank, you and Wendy and the Baba Link Foundation have not played a small role in encouraging us to work together and to get after speed and scale um, at a time when we need it most.
1: And Carter, the other thing that to me is so energizing about this is, it seems like we're you know, falling so far behind and so much of what we're trying to do globally, right? But there's a great sense of satisfaction when you can get something that's concrete that's done and just you know, help create a park. I mean, I think working with you on a park in Peru and some of the other work we've done around parks is, uh, is very satisfying. Now, I wanna to move to the health of the Amazon which is the region you focused a lot on, and it's critical to all of us. And, you know, it's a very high priority for WWF. But beyond our talk a bit about the work WWF is involved in there, what is it going to take to secure the health of the Amazon?
0: Well, you know, I think you and I and Wendy lost a very good friend this past Um, Winter, named Tom Lovejoy, who was a noted scientist of the Amazon, who was WWF's very first chief scientist for 15 years, and who always taught me that uh, you've got to look at the whole. And by looking at the whole, he meant you got to look at the whole Amazon, what's there, why it matters, and to understand all the bits and pieces and how they work and how they're related so that you can then figure out the right interventions to keep it intact. And so why does the Amazon matter? It matters a lot because it is the home to 350 different indigenous and ethnic groups. It is a storehouse of biodiversity. That uh, both freshwater and terrestrial, that's unmatched in the world. But when you look at the whole of the Amazon, it is also the weather engine for Latin America. Is the um, the cold, wet uh, winds come in off of the Atlantic? They they rain, they evaporate. That's repeated over and over. Slams into the Andes, heads south and delivers rain to uh, the second biggest breadbasket in the world and one of the biggest agricultural economies. You screw that up at your peril. And, um, and, um, and one other thing, it is also one of the biggest storehouses of carbon in the world and keeping the Amazon intact doesn't just keep the weather intact, it also helps stabilize the climate in a big way. So it matters a lot. And to secure the health of the Amazon, you need parks. You need to influence the way infrastructure is designed. You need to change the way food is grown so you can produce more food with less land uh, energy and, and water. And you need laws on the books and the government to enforce those. And you need the support of companies around the world to condition their supply chains so they can source products without cutting down the trees in a place like the Amazon. All of that has been working, but all of that is threatened now. Tom Lovejoy and other scientists have estimated that once we dip below 80% forest cover in the Amazon, that it will rapidly begin to convert into something else. That hydrological cycle will be turned off. And right now we are at 84%. And there is not much room for error at this point. And we need to get after all of this with the vengeance, not just in Brazil, but in Peru, Colombia, Ecuador, and many other countries besides. When you have the right national leaders in place in the Amazon, great things can happen. President Duque in Colombia right now, we're working with them on a big announcement that hopefully will happen this spring, where he is aiming to reach 30% of protected areas in Colombia and to announce that and to announce... A, a full financing package for the same. It's been repeated in other countries up and down the headwaters of the Amazon. So there are there are bright spots, but there are challenges. And um, okay, I just wanted to add that so it wasn't completely gloomy.
1: Now, turn to something that's more of a bright spot. WWF has had a big focus on tiger conservation for some time. Is there some good news to share on the tiger conservation front?
0: WWF, And other organizations were looking at the catastrophic decline of wild tigers throughout their range, where we've lost over 90% of the population from India to Malaysia, up into Nepal and Bhutan, up into Russia and also China. And 10 years ago, created a program called uh, TX2. And the idea was to, uh, to reverse that decline. Uh, to begin to restore populations and to double the population of tigers by the year uh, 2022. Heads of state throughout the region have been devoted to that. And it's required setting aside tiger reserves, working with communities on building their commitment to tigers. But it's also required shutting down the trade in tiger bones and tiger pelts, which um, are poached in the, the subcontinent and then traffic through the Himalayas, through monasteries and more, and into China and other parts of Asia. And WWF has been working on shutting down that trade in tigers and restoring populations and working with governments on enforcement and parks and with community. And um, we haven't reached T times two yet, but we have reversed the decline the number has gone up. And I was just in Nepal a month ago on the border with India in one of the most important reserves. And Nepal will be the first country on earth to announce that it has doubled its population. And is evidence of so that. Um, and last morning we were driving out and a female tiger appeared in the road right in front of us. And we followed her for 27 minutes and she had not an ounce of fear Because of the effectiveness of protected areas and enforcement in that part of the world. And we're going to see numbers like that in other countries too.
1: Now I want to switch gears a bit and and because WWF's focus as part in the US, its focus has been primarily been the northern Great Plains. What do you wish more people understood about grasslands?
0: Well, I think, Hank, you may remember back in the day when I was working on strategy with you at the Nature Conservancy, we, we mapped major habitats around the world and produced a paper of how well-conserved they are and what percentage of major habitat types, from temperate grasslands to tropical grasslands, same with forests, rivers, oceans, and the least well-protected were grasslands, whether it's the Northern Great Plains or the Pampas or the Serengeti or Mongolia. And so it's been a huge priority um, to protect grasslands. And the biggest threats to grasslands are converting them to monocultures like corn. And so you've got to keep the grass right side up. And it turns out there is a coalition of players who care as much about that as we do. And that includes ranchers, And it includes tribes and it includes the government. And so we have a partnership with all of those in the Northern Great Plains, along with the Nature Conservancy and others. Working with tribes to restore bison to their lands, working with ranchers to be able to manage their lands so they can pass it on to the next generation and working with government on the same. And it is it's an exciting time with big new uh, bison reserves being created by tribes like the Ogallala Sioux and uh, the Rosebud Reservation. And ranchers, really progressive ranchers doing some amazing things and, um, and being a force for good.
1: And I'll tell you, anyone that has walked through a prairie, you know, which, which has been restored or been protected, and sees the diversity of insect life, reptiles, birds, it's a pretty amazing ecosystem. And preserving grasslands also has a very important role to play when we're looking at nature-based conservation uh, as an important part of climate change. So again, very important. Now, you've alluded to this earlier uh, in talking about WWF and the Amazon, you've made a big effort to change the way food is produced and the green supply chains of big companies. Explain why and how that work has evolved along the way.
0: So when I started at WWF 18 years ago, we looked at all the most important places on earth that we were trying to conserve, and we ranked the threats to those places. You would have thought uh, today that the, the highest ranked threat would be climate change, but it wasn't. The highest ranked threat And the thing that was converting the habitat in those places faster than anything else was not food production per se, but unsustainable forms of food production. And um, in the Amazon, it was beef and soy. In the heart of Borneo, it's palm oil. In parts of Africa, it's timber operations and cacao. And every place is different, but one commonality is that Unless you change the way food is produced, particularly to meet the needs of the population of people on Earth, and to find a way to meet their needs using less land, energy, and water, we are going to lose these places. And so we created certification programs that would certify different agricultural commodities that were grown with less impacts on habitat. We did it on paper, pulp and paper. We've done it on timber. We did it on all kinds of commodities, but then we pivoted and looked at the top ten commodities. Who were the top companies who controlled the trade, either production, trading, or retail? And um, and we began to work with those companies and um, and to create uh, initiatives where though all those companies can come together to send signals that they will not buy commodities. Unless they were grown sustainably, and that is proven to be an enormous engine for changing the way food is produced and consumed, and is one of the things of which I am the most proud.
1: For sure, when the, the Paulson Institute has done work on the biodiversity crisis, you know the, the most important single thing that can be done to to to, to reverse it or to uh, make progress is to change harmful agricultural policies right? And because so many of the policies we have in place incent the destruction of natural capital. And so, again, very important. And again, the work that you're doing is emblematic of sort of the best things that I see WWF and others doing, looking at a big, complex project, and then Recognizing you, got it takes a multifaceted solution to make progress, and you're doing it there. Now, I'd like to, again, talk about biodiversity and the loss of nature. What's the relationship between climate change and natural capital de- destruction? And what are the biggest opportunities at the intersection of the two,
0: Carter? There, there is no question that the issues of climate change and the loss of nature are intertwined. And the more we've learned about climate change, the more we know that a third of greenhouse gas emissions come from unsustainable land use and deforestation. So you can't solve climate change without addressing the loss of nature. And by on the flip side, you can't save nature without climate change. Every country is different in the United States. We Most of our greenhouse gas emissions are renewable energy and transportation and manufacturing. And so scaling up renewable energy and scaling up um, new forms of transportation is profoundly important. And I think um, both parties and the general public, cities and states, know that, and we're getting after that with the vengeance. In a place like Brazil, the biggest source of emissions is deforestation and unsustainable land use. And so as an environmental movement, we have to do both. We got to scale up renewable energy and do so as fast as we can. And we have to scale up conservation and stemming the loss of nature and do that as fast as we can. The world has woken up to this. and, um, And I'm pleased to say that there is now governments, philanthropists, and businesses who realize that both matter a lot. And they are monitoring both creating initiatives on both. And um, and I, for one, am um, I see a world of opportunities out there and we need to jump on them as fast as we can.
1: Carter, as we're talking, we're witnessing this horrific humanitarian disaster in Ukraine with, with the Russian invasion. Now, this is obviously roiling geopolitics and the global economy and it's going to have lasting long-term effects i'm not going to ask you to predict what the impact is going to be on conservation and environment environmental protection you know this this isn't over yet it's going to take some time for this to sort itself out but it obviously is impacting your work in certain ways so how are you dealing with this right now at WWF?
0: Well, you're right, Hank. It is an incredibly complex issue. The war in Ukraine is, it's almost unimaginable, but we've seen borders close. We've seen sanctions. We've seen oil contracts being canceled and global trade shift. And there's no question you, you look at you know, almost 30% of the wheat in the world comes from Ukraine and Russia. It's uh, big parts of the world are fully dependent on oil out of Russia. And we as an organization have a, um, a program in the Ukraine and our staff have been in constant contact and, um, you know, from the subways and remote parts of the country. And we're just working to sustain them, and sustain our work. You cannot underestimate for Europeans, the Ukraine and um, and Russia are part of the broader European continent. And so there there are consequences for conservation. And for us, we've been working in the Arctic for, for decades. It's been one of the bright spots through thick and through thin of geopolitics. And the Arctic Council linked together all these governments around the Arctic And the functioning of the Arctic council right now has been fully affected. And so we're, we're, trying to figure out how to navigate that. And so our work in the the, the top of the planet, if you will, is really, has really been disrupted. And the other is the race to find stability and energy sources in Europe and other parts of the world right now. I think it's going to accelerate renewable energy in a huge way. And we have to evolve and jump on those opportunities as well. But it's not good it's not good for the world economy. It's also not good for our programs. And it's not good for the people and communities affected. So our hearts go out to all the people who are affected, including our staff. And we are doing everything we can to sustain those programs. But it's, it's awfully hard, given the sanctions and given the disruption. And we're doing the best we can.
1: And I know you are doing important work in Russia you know, in Siberia with the Amur Tiger, you've got people all over the world and it's just part of running a global conservation business.
0: Hank, just, just to give you two unexpected stories. One is we were working to translocate um, uh, endangered European bison from Poland to Chernobyl as part of the restoration efforts there. That's been stopped. And we've been also working on reintroducing tigers to Kazakhstan from Eastern Russia. And, um, and of course, there's been disruption in Kazakhstan as well. And the one thing I know about conservation and I know about all of our work is you got to take the long view, you've got to be persistent, and you've got to be able to shift to make things happen, even under the worst of circumstances. And this probably qualifies and no doubt qualifies as one of the worst of circumstances that we've seen in a long time.
1: Absolutely. And before the Russian invasion of Ukraine, we would have looked at COVID as being a worst of circumstances sort of situation. And so you've been managing you know, WWF through COVID. So how has that impacted your work, both your ability to get things done, uh, manage your staff, but how has it changed your conservation strategies or your thinking about conservation of the environment?
0: Well, you know, one thing that both um, the, the war in Ukraine and COVID remind you of is just how interconnected the world is. I mean, watching the different variants of COVID zoom around the world and how what one country does affects another is every bit as consequential as watching the, all the disruptions around the Ukraine. And I, um, I, I think for us with COVID, we, we moved immediately to working virtually. It had some real advantages in terms of lower greenhouse gas emissions, less travel, and some voices of some people were heard more clearly on Zoom than they are in crowded room. And we've also been able to get things done, launching some of the most consequential partnerships and having, last year, what some have considered to be our most successful year ever. The cost, and I'll tell you, having just started to travel to Bozeman, to meet with tribes, to Kathmandu, to meet with communities on the border of India, and just recently to go down to Mexico with a heathos to look at, um, or indigenous communities to look at butterflies, is the just the profound importance of human connection And that human contact is still enormously important in the world. And we're beginning to come back and we're working through a hybrid situation. But the bigger programmatic issue for us is that the more the world understands spillover of zoonotic diseases from bats, for instance, bats carry 2,000 zoonotic diseases. And they can do that because their bones are hollow. They don't have much bone marrow. And so they don't have Uh, the type of crippling antibodies that humans do to these diseases. But those diseases can spill over from bats to people when, when communities, fragment forests, bring their cows into the forest and bats feed on fruit trees, drop the fruit, the cows eat the fruit, the humans eat the cows. That becomes a vector every bit as much as the wet markets and the trade in high-risk species in a wet market in Wuhan. And so we've been working with China on shutting down the trade in those high-risk species. And we've also been working with governments around the world in keeping forests intact so you don't have that spillover in wild places in the Congo where, where Ebola came about because of exactly that kind of spillover. We've got to do this if we're going to stop the next... COVID and the next zoonotic disease, we have to do all of these things and, and get after them as quickly as we can.
1: Carter, I'm going to end this terrific conversation on a question for young people. Now, I can't tell you the number of times I hear from someone that they're interested, some young person, they want to do something in climate change to help protect against the threat of climate change, to help with the environment, they want to get involved in conservation. It seems like there's just a lot of young people that are interested in this, which to me is a very positive sign, but it's not as easy to tell young people what they need to do to to, to get jobs and make a real difference. So what advice you must hear all the time, you you know, you must be getting resumes, you know, I, I can only imagine how many people want to work for WWF. So what advice you have for young people interested in in a career in
0: conservation? Thank you, right. I wish we had jobs for everybody who wanted to work at WWF, and it is extremely competitive. I think I, I would have two pieces of advice. One would be, you know, the world of the environment is vast. It spans food, species, places, climate, energy, transportation, you name it. And so my first word of advice is to focus in on an area because any one of these areas is complex but it serves to focus your efforts and focus the kind of partnerships and knowledge you acquire and focus really matters i would the second thing i would say and i'm just remembering i I gave a speech at stanford business school early on in this job and a young man with a beard wearing a a che Guevara t-shirt stood up and said okay I, I want to save the planet. Where should I start? And I said to him, look, it doesn't matter whether you work in government or the private sector or a university or a NGO or a nonprofit. What matters is your ability to connect the dots between all those sectors. And you, if you're going to make a huge difference, you better be superb at not only understanding the point of view of all those sectors, but connecting the dots between them. And my role models for that are people who worked in all those different areas. And because of their life experience and their own, um, maybe their own academic knowledge, they were able to create initiatives that, that not only take advantage of regulation, they, they unleash the power of the markets and they make a difference with communities on the ground and have scientific rigor. So Hank, you yourself, or one of my role models for that, having worked at Goldman Sachs, leading that organization, having led um, our um, government's financial strategy and recovery at one of the most fraught times in um, our nation's history and having chaired the Nature Conservancy. And um, and now acting as an individual through the Paulson Institute and addressing issues in China in addition to issues of conservation throughout Latin America. We need more people who have that kind of background. Well, not everybody's going to be Secretary of Treasury, Chairman of Goldman Sachs, Chairman of TNC, but we need people who can Navigate those different worlds, bring them together, and then concoct solutions that work across all those sectors because you need all of the above to succeed at scale and you need all of the above for solutions to last. So get great at connecting the dots.
1: Carter, you know, I agree with that, but I'm going to add one other thing I know you believe also. It takes people skills, right? Almost every <laughs> success is, if you aren't able to work with people, you can connect all the dots in your mind, right? You, you, you can write a great paper, but the problems almost everywhere in any organization come down to people problems. And when there's successes, there's people successes. And so often young people today, they're just brilliant And I have to train people when we hire them. And I say, have you dealt with this problem? Yeah, I've sent them a text or an email. Well, Well,
0: that doesn't. You are dead right. And I always have three kids in college. And I always say to them, at the end of the day, relationships matter more than anything. And I, I totally agree with you. If you want to resolve a problem, don't send a text, don't send an email, walk down the hallway or pick up the phone and call somebody. And, um, and really take the time to get to know other people as people. Because at the end of the day, we're all so overwhelmed by all the information we get, all the different agendas and everything else. And at the end of the day, you learn to trust people who can get stuff done. And you also learn the importance of building partnerships and relationships. So you're not alone. I agree, Hank. I consider it, you know, one of the great gifts in my work is uh, the fact that every now and then I get together with all of my colleagues, an inspiring setting. You and Wendy have for decades invited us all to come together off the coast of Georgia and just in a neutral zone, get to know each other, have fun, but also talk about serious issues. And I've also watched you in um, when different organizations you've been a part of faced real crisis situations. I watched you reach out to the key senators, the key players, sit down, sort things out. And when I faced issues like that of my own, your advice to me was to do the same. And that is always the best advice is to just cut through all the abstraction and talk face-to-face directly with the people who matter and to get things done together.
1: Amen. And to listen. Carter, this has been terrific. You've given our listeners a lot to think about. So again, I thank you for devoting so much of your life to protecting the environment and and, and saving our planet. So thank you very much.
0: Hank, thank you.
1: You have listened to Straight Talk with Hank Paulson, a podcast of the Paulson Institute. To find more episodes from leading thinkers and doers, please visit paulsoninstitute.org backslash straight talk or download on Apple, Google Play, Spotify, and Stitcher. And don't forget to rate and subscribe. Thank you for listening and see you next time.